Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People Power Politics Podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted today to be joined by Mwita Chacha, an Associate Professor in International Relations at the University of Birmingham, and Obed Hodsi, a Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Liverpool, to discuss the changing nature of politics and international relations in Sub-Saharan Africa. Over the last few years, we have seen a significant rise in coups, and that perhaps suggests a new era both domestically and internationally. Domestically, there seems to be a shift in which citizens are starting to lose faith that democracy can deliver and are perhaps starting to look for alternatives. Although, of course, we have to be careful that in some cases, citizens have celebrated coups because they see them as a way of actually restoring a better quality of democracy. Internationally, having all of these new hunter regimes in particularly West Africa and to some extent Central Africa means there's a new international landscape, both for international community and also for regional bodies. So there's a big question here of what this domestic scene now means and what this new international scene now means and how other governments in the region and beyond might respond. Starting off uh, with you, Abert, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this scenario where not only were coups possible, but it now looks like it might actually be feasible to sustain them for at least a significant period of time? I think it is something that has happened over a long period of time. People getting frustrated with the promise that democracy is going to lead to development, to increase their standards of living. And over time, people have realized that democracy is not producing what it was intended to produce. That to some extent in countries where there has been changes in government or changes in leaders, the new leaders were not as bad as the old leaders. And so the frustration then grows that democracy is not bringing the change, transfer of power is not bringing the change, we are all producing the same leaders. And so when these military coup, when these military people come in, they come in on the promise that, look, the politicians have not done it and they haven't done it for a lot of years. This is our time to make things right and we'll make things right and hand over to someone who'll be able to do it. And as someone who comes from Zimbabwe in 2017, we kind of like celebrated. I was one of the many people who celebrated. And the hope was that Robert Mugabe is leaving. He has been there for years and change is going to come. But it's this produce the same people. People are frustrated again and they are hoping that there's going to be another coup to remove these leaders who are very difficult to remove. And sometimes it, it's left to the brave men with a gun to remove them. Thanks. I think that's a really good reminder. We, we focused a lot the last five years on countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Gabon, where we've had these quite explicit coups that also we've seen countries like Zimbabwe, where we had hashtag not a coup. There was a military takeover that was very carefully curated to try and make it look like it wasn't a coup. Mugabe was even allowed to go out and about during the transition as a way of trying to make it look like a sort of internal civilian matter. But of course it wasn't. It was at the barrel of a gun. And that's a good reminder that this has been going on for longer than just the last two years. That was back in 2017. But also that these processes can often be more subtle. We've had the situation in Chad, which is a little bit closer to the situation in Zimbabwe in terms of an internal palace arrangement rather than something that looks like a coup. And the question of which international actors are going to call it a coup and who's going to not call it a coup then becomes one of the big issues that we have to talk about. So I think that Zimbabwe example is a really instructive one. 
Now, Mita, just quickly before we talk about what this means for how countries around the world have to respond, we've talked a little bit there, you know, about, about the domestic context and how that's changed over the last few years, people starting to become really frustrated with the fact that democracy hasn't delivered enough for them. Has there also been an international change in the sense that Western governments have stopped placing as much emphasis on democracy promotion, that maybe it looks like you can get away with a coup now more than you could before? Is there also maybe more of a difference now in terms of the role that countries like China and Russia are playing in Africa? Has that meant that there's an international context that's facilitated these coups? I mean, to some degree, we could say that there's an international context that's influencing the coup outcomes that we're observing. But I will place a lot of emphasis on that. What is also happening is coup plotters are observing how regional organizations are responding or have responded to coups, and they are learning that they can get away with some of these actions. It could be the case that the United States could impose sanctions. Uh, it could be the case that the U.S. could, say, uh, suspend uh, military assistance to some of these countries as a result of coups. But I think what may be influencing plotters, along with, with what Robert is mentioning, that local context matters, that uh, local politics matter, is how these regional organizations have been responding. And they may be sending the message, in the case of, say, Zimbabwe, that some of these events are not coups. They are you know, domestic power changes and we can let those fly. Or in the case of uh, Egypt, when Morsi was overthrown a few years ago, African Union ended up accepting those that had plotted that coup as the legitimate leaders of Egypt. And so these signals, I would say, are influencing the kinds of actions you're observing today where plotters believe they can somehow get away with it. Now, maybe come back to Rita before we go back to Albert. One of the things that's interesting is, of course, we have different regional bodies in Africa. We've got the Southern African Development Community, SADAC. We've got the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. Historically, we've you know we've talked about them as having different approaches, right? SADAC, perhaps, as you say, tolerated the not-a-coup hashtag in Zimbabwe. ECOWAS has been seen as being more forceful and anti-coup in West Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about why ECOWAS maybe has played a sort of stronger anti-coup role and also... So what have we seen from ECOWAS recently? Is that anti-coup position starting to slip or are they still trying to hold on to that quite strong anti-coup strategy of previous years? One of the reasons why we see a stronger response from the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, has to do with the frequency of coups in West Africa over time. If you look at a map of Africa and you categorize countries based on how many coup attempts or successful coups they've had, you'll see that West African countries stand out. And that could be a reason why ECOWAS has a, you could say, more forceful anti-coup policy that has, in many ways, it has actually developed and become very stringent when it comes to these kind of events. I would say that what you observing right now is that the extent of ECOWAS's responses may not be going far enough, meaning that ECOWAS and, say, the African Union are organizations that respond to coups, but they miss the uh, triggers of coups. Some of the coups we've seen in West Africa recently have to do with leaders who may have been elected following previous coup attempts, trying to find ways to remain in power after their terms have ended, leaders who are undermining human rights. And the ECOWAS and the African Union do not, in, in many ways, they do not respond to those actions forcefully. And I would say that as a result of that, we are seeing that by responding to coups later on or by responding to these outcomes of human rights violations or time limit violations, and we're seeing that the anti-coup policy is not that strong. 
I think that's a great point. You know, we could almost say that it's not so much that democracy failed these countries, but that leaders failed democracy, right? Leaders who were elected in civilian elections that were supposed to replace military rule then created a situation in which actually they undermined their own democratic legitimacy, which made it easier for these coups to take over. But coming back to you then, where does that leave us in terms of what these regional organizations and others, the United States, the European Union, others who care about these issues have historically been pro-democracy, where does that leave them in terms of of how to respond. We've seen a lot of the standard things, right, where we typically see things like big statements against coups, immediate suspension of the budget support aid if it's being provided, shifting funding modalities to civil society, these kinds of things. And yet that doesn't seem to have made that much difference in these cases. In fact, in some cases like Mali, the strong position taken by those actors enabled coup plotters to rally support against them playing the sovereignty card, and maybe it even backfired. So where does that leave us in what should be the response? response, both regionally and internationally? I think it's important to understand the local context. Some of the coups in Mali, in Niger, we saw people waving flags of Russia, waving flags and saying, we don't want France to intervene in Zimbabwe. It was, we don't even want Sadak to intervene. Why are people doing that? It's because over a long period of time, these regional organizations have been kind of like big boys clubs. They support each other. They cover each other's back. We see that with the revolutionary movements in Southern Africa, they pretty much support each other in some way and cushion each other and make sure that they remain in power. In ECOWAS, it was a little bit different and that there was a bit of a strong stance. But again, the weakness of ECOWAS in the sense that you need consensus of all the countries in order to take action. And if that consensus is not forthcoming, then that becomes a problem. But even in cases where there is consensus that we need to take action against this military coup, what we have seen is in most of the communities, they do not have the financial means to support whatever struggle is going to come after that. And what they end up doing is to say, well, they EU as for EU for funding to undertake this operation. What it means for local people, for people who would have taken over power by military means, is an understanding that these regional organizations do not have capacity to carry through what they say they're going to do. And that stretches even to the African Union. What really can an African Union do to Niger, to Mali, to Burkina Faso? or any military that decides to take over power. There's very little that they can do because there is nothing really that is tangible that they are giving to those countries in exchange for membership. So they have nothing to take back. The only thing they can say is we're suspending you. But what does suspension mean from the African Union? It simply means that now you don't need to pay any membership fees, which many countries are not paying anyway. The regional organizations, the African Union, they don't have any leverage over these military leaders who take over power. And over a long period of time, they come to understand that these regional organizations are not able to do anything. Now, the challenge with the West, which has been to some extent, and I say West more broadly, is that they have been to some extent bankrolling democracy in many African countries. So when the money stops coming, the struggle for democracy stops there. You can see that in many African countries where civil society organizations have never been able to raise financing from their own citizens. Instead, they continuously get the money from the West. If Britain cuts the budget, then that affects the push for democracy. So demand for democracy is not homegrown. So it's very 
very easy for people to then come back and say, oh, well, this democracy thing is not working because look at these civil society guys. They've been chopping money from the European Union and we're not getting anything. So we're better off supporting these military leaders. Perhaps we will get something. So it becomes politics of the stomach. The other challenge as well is what can France, the UK do if the military has taken out a leader who is not popular? It seems then they'll come and say, okay, against the will of the people, we need to reinstate this leader. Gabon comes to mind. So you stand the risk of going against the popular will. And these military leaders understand that as long as they cite people and they create the external threat and say, we are in the situation that we are in because our leaders are corrupt and they are corrupt because France is supporting them, the UK is supporting them, the EU is taking our resources. Then the EU, France, US and everyone else becomes the other that people are fighting against. So that then becomes a, a huge challenge and China comes in, in in the picture. Just before we get to China, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about just then and, and then I will come to China and, and to Russia and it's because of course you've done great work on that. But one of the things I think is really interesting is what you just said, and I think we want to emphasize it, which is the classic model would be, okay, there's a coup that's taken out a civilian government. You go in and you try and reimpose that civilian government. The problem in a country like Niger is it's fairly clear that whether or not you think that the coup should have happened, whether or not you think the government was doing a good job on security, and there's some evidence it wasn't doing as bad a job on security as some other governments in West Africa, it's fairly clear that the president wasn't very popular. And so, as you say, the problem is if you go in and you reimpose that president, are you saving democracy or are you imposing a president that actually a lot of people have lost confidence in? And that's where I think there is a really big challenge for the international community, which is what's the middle option? And I don't think we've really thought that through. Is the middle option to say we're going to come in, but we recognize that things have got to such a state that we actually think there needs to be new elections in which this president can stand, but we don't think it would make sense to simply assert this person as the president. For example, imagine there had been some kind of intervention in, in Niger that could overnight click the fingers, just imagine sort of hypothesis. All of a sudden, you can reinstate the president. The problem is the coup has undermined the confidence in the president. The president has somehow now been associated with the international community because it would be the international community that would be intervening to put him back in power. So he's weaker than he was before in terms of his kind of legitimacy and his standing. And you've got a situation where you know that the military's launched a coup that was only reversed by the interference of people outside the country. It seems to me that that's a condition under which the president's far more vulnerable and weak after the coup than he was before. The chances of that president surviving and stability surviving seem limited. The international community also need to think about what's another option that we could try and push for democracy to come back, but not necessarily foist someone who's unpopular. I just wanted to really bring that out because I thought that point you made was a really excellent one. Now, to come to the China-Russia part of the story, I guess where they come in here is partly that we're in a situation, as you say, where a lot of this is being driven by who's going to be able to provide resources. And if the US and the UK and the EU do cut the money, a big question is how many choices do African governments have about where they might be able to get that support. And a lot of people think Russia and China are big players as a result of increasing those choices, partly also because, as you said, we see people flying Russian flags. So I've got a couple of questions that maybe we'll go to Mita first and then come back to you on the China side of this as well. The first is how big a game changer do we think China and Russia have been to this? Mwita, you already suggested that, you know, we shouldn't overplay perhaps their importance, but in terms of the ability to sustain the coup, but also so I'm intrigued, uh, you know, where do those Russian flags come from? Who produces those Russian flags? Do we really think millions of people have become massively pro-Russia across West Africa? Or is that almost itself part of a disinformation campaign and the political strategy of hunters that advertising this 
this and trying to get their supporters behind it. I ask that as a genuine question because the idea of people waving Russian flags in protest is something we haven't really seen before. And I'm sort of unsure about how much it's a genuine homegrown love of Russia and how much it's more of a strategy being used by leaders. So Muita, over to you. So I think we need to distinguish what China may be interested in and what Russia is interested in, especially in this context of Russia's uh, deteriorating relationship with the West. So for me, I mean, my my own thoughts are that I don't think China is driving in any way coup activity in Africa. China values stability in many ways because China is interested in a stable environment to do business, you know, get natural resources, expand its international economic network. And so I wouldn't say that they're in favor of some of these activities that somehow in many ways result in instability that can undermine China's interests. But Russia is a different case. I think Russia, especially since the increasing, you could say, activities of the Wagner Group and this increasing tension between Russia and the West has, in a way, tried to benefit from some of these situations. And the benefit here comes from you know, undermining the West's position in these countries, undermining whether it's France or whether it's the United States, undermining the whole idea of liberal democracy and pointing out that look at what is happening in Niger, look at what's happening in Burkina Faso, where you had these leaders who claim to be democracies supported by the West, and they failed their people. We have an alternative. But the Wagner Group comes into play because it's providing an alternative security guarantee for some of these regimes, whether it is during the time of following the coup itself, so the immediate period following the coup, where they come and stand in as potential armed suppliers or security suppliers to these countries, or later on, and here you could say that there's an involvement of the Russian government where they are presenting themselves as the alternative to EU support, European Union support, or France's influence in these countries. This is where I think we see these this Russian flag being presented to the public and the public thinking of them as though they are the alternative to decades of French influence in their country. And seeing it as perhaps an alternative to pursue compared to these decades of French influence in their countries. I mean, it is interesting to me that, you know, hunters that have prided themselves in part on sovereignty have been so quick to have the Russian flag flown in their capital cities, which which is slightly perplexing, perhaps, or paradoxical. But I, w- I want you to come in here and reflect on this. But I also want to throw another question in maybe to move us to the next part of the conversation, which is how sustainable is this now going to be? So it's one thing to overthrow an unpopular leader. It's another thing to play on anti-French sentiment, etc., and to whip up pro-Russian sentiment. It's another thing completely to actually deal with what a lot of these governments are facing, which is radical insurgencies, high levels of insecurity, high levels of crime, low state capacity, and also a lot of domestic anticipation now that people have been promised things are going to get better. I'm interested in two sides of this. I mean, one, do you think these governments can deliver in any way over the next few years? And also, connecting back to our kind of theme of the international relations, does Russia actually have the resources to be able to provide what these countries need over the next four or five years? Because my sense is that Russia maybe can deal with one or two countries in Africa at a time. If it starts to end up heavily involved or the Wagner group, whatever manifestation that is now in, is heavily involved in four or five theaters at the same time, which is kind of what would be required for it to actually operate across Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, etc. If that's where we're heading, I'm not entirely convinced they actually have the capacity to deliver in terms of their promises in a way that would actually replace the sort of financial support you would get from the European Union plus the United States and so on. So where are we in terms of how likely this is to be stable and successful in terms of these governments themselves? And also, where are we in the actual capacity of some of these international partners to deliver on the promises that are kind of being made to citizens? You're very right. The capacity for Russia is very limited. I think if you look at what Russia has been, its investments in African countries, if you look at 
financial aid to African countries is very, very limited. You can't even compare it with the major countries. So there's very limited support. Much of its support came probably from Wagner Group. And to some extent, depending on how we think about the Wagner Group, but I would think of it as reflecting the weakness of the Russian state in the sense that you have this military group, private, public in some way. But this is a private military group that has become so powerful that at some point, some people would say maybe it was a manufactured kind of crisis, would want to challenge the Russian state. And if it genuinely tried to challenge the Russian state, it reflects the weakness of the Russian state and its level of capacity to be able to meet the challenges that African countries have. Russia, I don't see it providing any meaningful assistance to these leaders. The waving of the Russian flags, it's maybe a reincarnation of the Cold War times where a leader would say, if you don't provide me support, I'm going to get that support from the Soviet Union and go to the Soviet Union and say, I'm going to get the support from the United States. So one way of doing it without necessarily, perhaps you don't have the audience of Putin or uh, Biden, is to spread these flags, give them to the people, and let people wave them around. And mm. that, to some extent, draws the attention of Russia. Russia say, oh, we actually are popular in Africa, and maybe we should do something with this guy. So it's a clever way of trying to grab the attention of these big powers. But Russia plays a, quite an important role, particularly at the moment, in the sense that for many people, and they see Russia as standing up to the U.S., particularly on Ukraine, right? And it didn't help that there were many racial tensions when they, you know, when the crisis in Ukraine began. And to some extent, it pushed many African publics to start thinking, oh, well, it's the European war, let the Russians deal with them, and the Russia is challenging the U.S. for us. And there were rumors, uh, and I think uh, some U.S. senators who tried to propose a law that would punish African governments for siding with Russia or trying to engage Russia in some way, forcing them to take a side. All those things build into this sentiment that Africa has been a punching bag in some way of Western countries and anyone who stands up to the West becomes an ally in some sense. So these military leaders can capitalize on that to their benefit. And to some extent, it has benefited them in some way in that they get their attention, they get the US to reconsider how they look at them and say, oh my God, we're losing these people, we're losing influence to, to China or we're losing influence mm -hmm. to Russia. Now, I agree with Mita that China would prefer that countries are stable so that they can continue doing business. And these military coups place China in a very tricky situation. How do they respond? How do they support the previous leader? How do they support these new leaders? And their approach is kind of like a standard approach. Or we urge the parties to deal with this problem in an amicable way or something like that. And they will judge and see what the regional organizations are going to say about it. If the regional organizations are quiet, then they quietly continue with whichever government comes into power. So China, in that sense, free rides, waits for regional organizations to see what goes on and then follow it. But I think the biggest challenge that China presents for many African countries that are struggling and trying to bring about democracy and development at the same time is that China is pushing this idea that you don't need democracy and good governance for you to achieve development, that you can get development without democracy. Or if you are so fond of this word democracy and human rights, you can define it based on your own context. 
So democracy becomes what we want it to be. And in most cases, it becomes what the ruling elites want it to be. It becomes much more challenging and much more difficult to for us to think, how well can we deal with these problems? Because it sees this being a Niger problem. It sees being a Chad problem. It sees being a Zimbabwean problem. It becomes an international problem of democracy and human rights being challenged at that scale. That's a really good point. Thank you. And I think one of the things that I'm intrigued by now is, is how does that play out? Because, of course, for a while, you know, maybe democracy there was the bad guy. People were worried about democracy not delivering America and France being constructed as the bad guys because they've been heavily involved for so long and therefore they're tainted by their association with those existing governments. I'm intrigued as to now whether this happens to Russia, right? Are we going to see in 10 years time people on the streets protesting against Russia as they've been protesting against France recently because Russia's been there for 10 years. After 10 years, it will be seen as the government propping up the bad dictator. It will be seen as the government propping up the corrupt guys who aren't delivering services. And in a sense, we're now going to see a cycle where people who were getting fed up with democracy will start to see, well, actually, the military maybe isn't delivering stability. It's not doing great on services. It's got this relationship with Russia. So all of a sudden, we get a resurgence of desire for democracy and desire for perhaps Western support and rejection of Russia. Is that the cycle that we're now in? Or do you have more hope for the ability of these governments, of um, some of these international players to stabilize the system? I mean, and here, Mwitono, maybe you want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that these governments actually face, which are some of the most profound challenges, right, that any governments really face globally in terms of the vast territories, the problems of insecurity and so on. But Mwitono, over to you. What, what do you think actually happens from here over the next few years? I think, I mean, assuming that these regimes are able to withstand African Union sanctions, international condemnation, U.S. sanctions, whatever that looks like, or European Union sanctions, assuming that they survive all that, the next task becomes how do you demonstrate to the public that what you're offering is a better alternative to what was there under the, the civilian administration, the democratic administration. And what we are seeing, I mean, it's too soon to tell. case of Burkina Faso, for instance, it's been about two, three years. And the insurgency that the armed forces used as a reason for staging the coup is still going on. It hasn't been resolved. Their contacts with the Wagner Group haven't really resolved in any meaningful progress in terms of improving the security situation of that country. I mean, for me, I think that over time, assuming that they last, say, 10 years, I think the public will be dissatisfied with that kind of situation. And it may be the case that they protest against whatever regime these military uh, folks are presented to them, whether it's uh, some kind of authoritarian uh, democracy, whatever they want to call it. I think there'll be some kind of reaction against that, which may result in, say, a call for a more representative form of government. And I mean, one thing that I should also highlight here is that if you look at the Afrobarometer surveys that have asked this question about Russia's popularity in Africa, Russia is not popular in Africa. I mean, the public doesn't, either they don't know about its influence in Africa or they are just not that blown away by Russia's influence in Africa. But, you know, France is popular. The U.S. remains popular. Democracy remains popular in Africa. So I wouldn't say that these events are demonstrating to us that either the public is for the armed forces ruling them or the public is in a greater extent anti-Western. But I would say that assuming these military men remain in power for the next 10 years and they fail to deliver on their promise of security, they fail to deliver on their promise of political stability, economic growth, then the consequence will be that the public will go against them. That's bound to happen. 
Thanks. Yeah. Now, final question, and I'll throw it over to you, Robert, and, and then to Marita as we wrap up. So to continue on that theme, Robert, feel free to chip in on that. But I'm also interested in how stable these systems actually are going to be internally. We've already seen, you know, allegations or claims that there were attempted coups in some countries. Of course, we've already seen multiple coups in some of these countries. In places like Mali, Sudan, etc., we've kind of seen coups in response to coups. Sometimes the military trying to reassert its control, having, you know, transferred authority to some sort of civilian transitional administration. Sometimes we see coups of one faction of the military trying to take over from another. So, Albert, as you answer this, I'm also interested in how stable are these militaries need to be in themselves, or are we actually likely to see more sort of factional tensions? And, and how do we expect it to play out? One of the things, Mita, that you might be interested in touching on before we wrap up is the form these governments take, because, of course, officially, most of these hunters actually transfer power to some sort of civilian force as part of the deal they negotiate in order to normalize relations with other powers and that's supposed to lead in a few years hopefully less to elections but we see a lot of slow progress towards that we see civilian leaders who might seem to be more likely to be puppets than real leaders they're kind of being controlled by military powers they don't really have their own agency they can't really make their own decisions so but it'd be really interesting to hear more about the stability angle and Rita maybe a little bit more about what form are these governments actually going to take and are they actually going to be civilian sort of regimes with a military backing or will the military actually dispense with that civilian wrapping paper and just rule themselves i think what we may end up seeing is like you have rightly argued in another research that you have done a coup begets another coup simply because these coups unlike a democratic system no matter how imperfect it is a democratic system allows people to develop leadership skills and to rethink institutions revise them try to strengthen them it may take a long time but it's a process that allows that to happen these coups what they basically do is to short circuit that process and you have leaders who are accidental leaders in some cases, brave people, and they have a gun. So how good it may end up being is if you end up with a good prince, with power, with military force, but then is doing good. If you end up with a bad prince, you are going to be in serious trouble because you try to maintain power as much as possible. And this is probably what we, we will see. They'll try to get power. They'll try to get as much as they can in terms of wealth and then hand over power to their puppet, someone they will be able to control. And the changes in government become who is the strongest at that time. And I think that's the biggest challenge with these military coups that we're seeing in that people lose confidence in civilian politics and they start thinking, I need to get as much power as I can or to get people with power on my side and then I can grab that power going forward. And then if you couple that with elections that are imperfect, you are likely going to see that happen even more, that you have elections of some sort, but then soon after those elections, military takes over again. I'm not very hopeful. I, I, I don't see good coming out of this. I think we are in for a very rough ride. Thanks for that sobering analysis. And um, we took it over to you, you know, both be interested to get your perspective on, on these kind of systems and the civilian versus military and is there, is there any kind of silver lining to this cloud or is it just a cloud? I think, first of all, we need to observe or we need to understand the track record of the armed forces that find a way to stay in power. If you look at Zimbabwe, right, it's a case in point where the armed forces somehow found a way to take the military fatigues off 
put on civilian clothes, rain for elections, and the international community was fine with that. And I think this is a template that we, we may observe in the recent coups in, in West Africa, where at least, I mean, currently we're in a transition period for many of these countries. But what they seem to be attempting is to prolong the transition, uh, to come across as though they are moving towards a restoration of civilian rule, but really they are not doing that. And what we may observe uh, moving forward is perhaps some of these majors, captains, colonels, etc., will find a way to be able to contest elections aimed at restoring civilian rule. And then they'll go to the public and, you know, say that, okay, we are now retired from the army. We are now civilians. We're going to contest elections. And we see a repeat of the authoritarianism that has been happening in some of these countries in the past, right? Whether it's Burkina Faso, uh, whether it's Niger, the armed forces, general, for instance, somehow is now a civilian, but you know, the authoritarianism is not going to disappear, whether they change their, their military fatigues or not. And so whether there's a silver lining going forward, I think it's hard to tell. Observing how many of these armed forces have learned from how the international community responds or fails to respond, I think they will find a way to remain in power. And that means for many of these countries that the situation may not improve uh, in the next few years. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I certainly share your sort of concerned analysis. And I think the one silver lining that might be there is that if this comes to pass, you know, the prediction of kind of instability coupled with not particularly well-performing military regimes, the one silver lining there is that will reinforce a sense of public desire for more accountable representative government and a kind of sense that authoritarian government isn't actually going to deliver and be the savior, which as you say, the kind of rise of China, the success of Rwanda has kind of created that idea. Perhaps one positive that comes out of this is the idea that actually, you know, really having representative governments and civil liberties is a thing that actually keeps you safest and is most likely to develop your economy in the longer term. Maybe we'll see. It does remind me, you know, interestingly, what you were just saying, that kind of cycle that you and Herbert just brought up actually reminds me a little bit of, you know, a classic book on, on Nigeria, a military rule in Nigeria, Transition Without End. Perhaps we're in for a period of, of instability and cycling. And I think that chimes with something I've been thinking recently, which is just as perhaps we assumed that democracies were consolidated when they really weren't. And now I'm thinking as much about the United States as, as anywhere in Africa. You know, it's important not to think that these authoritarian systems are consolidated. Actually, what we might be seeing is a much more unstable period of flux. So thank you so much for this fabulous and far-reaching uh, discussion. I think we've covered an incredible amount of ground, but also gone into, you know, quite a lot of great depth. And I think we've provided our listeners with a really good understanding of the new era that we're potentially moving into and why it might be you know, a significant one. So thank you so much for making the time today, Mwita Chacha, the Associate Professor in International Relations at the University of Birmingham, Robert Hodsey, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Liverpool. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work that we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description. Thank you.